Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love dogs and cats and the people who care about them. Every week I talk with authors and pet experts to expand our understanding and appreciation of the animals sharing our planet. To hear earlier episodes of this show and download podcasts of other informative Pet Talk radio shows that I co-host with top veterinarians and experts, please go to the website for RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. I also produce the Dog Film Festival, sponsored by the Petco Foundation, which travels the country celebrating the love between dogs and their people and benefiting the animal welfare groups that bring them together. More information is at dogfilmfestival.com. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a family-owned pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Waruva's owners want to feed their own pets and yours with ingredients that are good enough for people to eat, using the same care, ingredients, and facilities where they make food for people. You can find pouches and cans of their cats in the kitchen, their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend, and all varieties of Waruva for dogs wherever fine natural pet foods are sold. This show is also supported by Canine Advantix 2, a proud sponsor of the Dog Film Festival. Fleas, ticks, and mosquitoes can be a pain, and their bites can transmit diseases. Did you know that many products require fleas and ticks to bite your dog to die? But not Canine Advantix 2. It kills fleas, ticks, and mosquitoes through contact. No biting required. Help protect your dog with Canine Advantix 2, available from pet specialty retailers and veterinarians. Canine Advantix 2 is for use on dogs only. More information at canineadvantix.com. I have three wonderful guests today. Jonathan Crown is going to be with us from Berlin with his amazing book, Sirius. What an incredible book. You are going to love it and him, I hope. Uh, Alex Doucet is here with his new company, Ollie. He's been part of the Dog Film Festival and given out samples to all kinds of dogs. And he's a, a Frenchman with a whole new take on dog food. And Dr. Bruce is going to be here talking about cat scratch fever. It's actually quite serious and something that uh, I don't think people are aware enough about when they're playing with their kitty cats. Jonathan Crown, there you are in Berlin, Germany. What do the Germans <laughs> think of your book, Jonathan? I'm so crazy for it. Do the Germans, do they love it? Do they hate it? Do they understand it? Well, it's, it, it's, uh, it, it was a bestseller here in Germany, but uh, it uh, received mixed uh, reactions because uh, uh, it uh, it deals with uh, the darkest chapter of uh, German history and uh, tells it in a satirical way. So people were asking, are we allowed to laugh about uh, Hitler? This was, of course, the uh, the, the, the 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 big question, and yes. uh, um, Sirius provoked the discussion when it came out in Germany two years ago. And I imagine that that was your desire to provoke that discussion to shake no, things not, up. N- no, no, not no, 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 not really. I, I'm uh, no, I, I just, uh, you know, the the uh, my my own dog, uh, uh, a fox terrier, was the inspiration for the book back in in uh, 2013, and uh, uh, I started in a in a very with a with a very poetic uh, 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 question. I was wondering what was going on on his mind. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, yes. <laughs> he was, we, all, we I mean, all wonder that, Jonathan. We do. Exactly. We wonder that. Exactly. 
uh, 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 he he was looking at me with this innocent, curious, wide open eyes. I, I'm I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Yes, absolutely. Especially a fox terrier. That face. You know? <laughs> that face yes. is just. There's definitely something going on. Um, let let yeah. me. Explain. And you know, he was. Uh, uh, and I was wondering, what is his conception of human beings? What is his conception of life? Uh, and I wanted to find out by confronting this little creature with the greatest horror in the history of mankind, uh, Adolf Hitler and the Holocaust. So this idea got my uh, fantasy started. And uh, uh, it's, it's, it, 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 it's absolutely not a book about Adolf Hitler, but it's a, it's a book about... Uh, 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 a little funny creature uh, set against that, that horrible background. And uh, I wanted the story to be dramatic, emotional, and funny at the same time. So that was the, 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 my goal. Well, you know, I suppose that in writing a novel, a novelist never knows exactly where that book will go, and particularly yeah. where the characters will take him. And it feels very much to me as though Sirius set out maybe with just that idea, well, what what if that little fox terrier belonged to some Jewish, some nice Jewish people in the middle of Berlin? And what if just as it all began, he got caught up in it? So let's say that was the germ of the idea. But this dog winds up in Hollywood at the height of Hollywood when there were, I hadn't even stopped to think about it, so many illustrious Germans there. Yeah. And he becomes the movie star. And yeah. the, the book is, is, uh, is, to those people that, that love filmmaking and, and love the great artists of film, it seems to me a movie that Terry Gilliam would make. It's fantastical. Oh. It's brilliant. It's uh, It has such touches of genius because it makes you laugh or smirk. But then, of course, it is about this great and horrible thing that happened, but that a German man wrote it now. You know, it's very interesting, I think, how... I don't know other artists in Germany, whether they're fine artists or musicians or poets, how you grapple with choosing to write about the Holocaust and looking at it in a new and different way. I myself have been very absorbed since I was a teenager with Holocaust literature, Holocaust documentaries. I've spent two full days at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and I haven't been to any other museum in Washington, D.C. So I'm very familiar very drawn to trying to understand it and absorb it and the work of Primo Levi and some extraordinary contemporary and older uh, novelists yeah. who've written fiction. But no one has done what you've done, which is allow us to imagine it from a dog's eye view. And it's just, it, it has such invention, Jonathan. It's, and then this dog winds up in Hollywood. And what could be more absurd than the horrors of the Holocaust and the crazy madness of Hollywood what yeah. how did this dog take you to Hollywood as a novelist what got him what got him to take you there I mean it, uh, as, as you say I mean a lot of uh, German artists back at the time they they uh, uh, they went into exile in, in yes. Hollywood and uh, I mean I, I love Hollywood especially the golden era so uh, uh, I wanted uh, uh, to set uh, a series back in time and go on adventures there on, on my behalf because I, I really I love it. I'm so obsessed with the good old days of Hollywood. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you the, uh, the, the, the story. When I was living in, south, in the south of France for many, many years, I actually bought a house close to the house of uh, uh, 
Roby the Cat, you know, the, the <laughs> Cary Grant's character in, <laughs> in Hitchcock's uh, To Catch a Thief, one of my favorite movies ever. And Absolutely. the house uh, uh, still exists. It, it, it nestles in the hills above the French Riviera. It still exists. And I could see it from my terrace every day. And I, even I, I, I would take the same bus line that uh, took Cary Grant down to the flower well, market in, in Nice. So I'm and, really and obsessed with I it. I love um, that. So here I am obsessed with the Holocaust. And here you are obsessed with old Hollywood. What I found <laughs> incredible, having lived for probably one might say too many years myself in, in more modern Hollywood, is the similarities between the personalities and the characters and the bravado and the silliness of people in the movie industry, the way you depict it, and it feels as if you almost lived it, is so similar with the great old days of Hollywood and the not so great current days of Hollywood, the kinds of characters, yeah. the kind of hyperbole, the kind of <laughs> over the top, and that this little dog becomes a movie star is just so funny. And, and the people running the studios are the greats that ran the studios. Did you do a lot of research or did you just already know about, I don't know, David O. Selznick or, or Mayer or these other? Yeah, I mean, if you're obsessed with the, with the, 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 the grand old days and the golden era of Hollywood, then, then yeah, I know, I know a lot of stuff about it and I, I adore it. And uh, I, I, it, it was, uh, it was my goal to, uh, sand serious on a, on a, on an adventure that uh, eventually ends up in in uh, uh, in, ho in Hollywood. You know, I mean, I'm I'm living in an imaginary world, so uh, reality and me that just doesn't <laughs> click. <laughs> I, well, I that, prefer I the guess, past. That that is, I guess, why I I just could not wait to meet you and talk to you about this book because there are books that you read in your life, and for me, Alice in Wonderland is one of them that you, you read it at a time in your life and it's always with you and it resonates. And, you know, just recently somebody was doing something. I thought, oh, that's like the queen playing croquet with those pink flamingos. And I feel <laughs> as though Serious will now always be a book for me where when I do think of the Holocaust and it comes up, you know, it's, it's referred to in many ways frequently. I mean, people are trying to refer to, to horrible things happening nowadays as being like the Holocaust. And of course, really, honestly, nothing ever was or ever will be, we hope, exactly organized that way. Oh, yeah, but sure, yeah. uh, it, it makes me think of Sirius and this marvelous little dog. I, I had a few sections that I wanted you to read, and you said to me that you're more comfortable reading in German, and since most of the people listening don't understand German, that would include me, I'm going to take the liberty <laughs> of reading from the book because there's no way to really appreciate the joyful inventiveness of it than to hear it. Oh, so Tracy, I'm gonna, I'm thank you very much for saying that. Oh, I just, I adore this book. I, I happen to be on my one vacation of the year in Italy with my sister, and I sat looking out at the Mediterranean, reading this book, and just thought, please, read slowly. I want it to last much longer. It's a little book. I want it to be a big, fat book. Okay, so this is the very first beginning of the book. Every morning at 10 o'clock on the dot, Professor Lilienkron steps out of his house, and what happens next is always the same. He draws in a deep breath of air as if he were standing on a mountaintop in the Alps, drinking in the healthy climate. Even his clothes are suggested of this wanderlust, a flat cap, a hiking jacket, knee breeches. Next to him, ready and waiting, is his fox terrier. 
The dog waves his tail expectantly, thinking, now we're off. Then the two of them, and I'm not going to be good at pronouncing the German, so just forgive me. Then the two of them trot down Klamastrasse, a small side street just off Berlin's Kurfensendam. I'm doing it wrong, but never mind. At the first <laughs> tree, they stop. The dog snuffles around. Herr Lilienkron pulls a book out of his jacket pocket and reads, nothing disturbs their tranquility. Neighbors call out their greetings. Herr Lilienkron nods back in a friendly fashion, then immerses himself in his book once more. Meanwhile, the dog circles the tree as swiftly as he can, his snout always right up next to the trunk where a few blades of grass grow. Sometimes he barks at the tree, growling invitingly as if he wants to play with it. Then he lifts his leg. This can continue for a good half hour. Eventually, Herr Lilienkron claps his book shut, puts it away in his pocket, and prepares to set off back home. The dog has no such intentions. He wants to play with the tree for longer, much longer. Herr Lilienkron calls his name softly but sternly, Levi. Levi knows that he is the one being addressed. Every single time this happens, he tries to put on an expression which, in his opinion at least, can't fail to have a heart-wrenching impact. He accompanies this with a pitiful yelp, drooping his tail and nestling up close to the tree as a gesture of deeply felt inseparability. Herr Lilienkron begins to head off. As he walks away, he casually unwraps a bar of chocolate, as if it were mere coincidence that he should do so at this moment. The crackle of the paper wrapping weakens Levi's resolve. The tree will still be there tomorrow, he thinks to himself. Transitory things should always take precedence. The professor and his dog, always at the same time, always at the same tree, in the heart of Berlin. So this sets us off. You're a, a great, you're a great reader, Tracy, by the way. Well, you're kind to say that, but, you know, it's it's just delicious writing. It's it's so great because, you know, it's, it's not all from the dog's point of view, but right away, this book sees things from the dog's point of view. Talk a little bit about how this book, this dog is called Levi, quite a Jewish-ish name. Yes. And how he winds up being called Sirius because it, it uh, again, speaks to the fact that during the transition, in during what was to become the Holocaust, people tried to make pretend they weren't Jewish. Some of them tried to change their names. Some of them, for all the good it did. But uh, talk about this dog named Levi who winds up being called Sirius, like the star, S-I-R-I-U-S. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, they they uh, uh, back at that time uh, uh, people and uh, and 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 by the way also dogs they had to change their name uh, 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 so that uh, that you wouldn't recognize them as as uh, as, as Jewish and uh, so uh, uh, Halilian Crone uh, gives him the name of the dog star uh, uh, because they look at the skies uh, uh, the dark skies and there's it's the the brightest light on the on the on the on the sky and uh, uh so he's uh he's called Sirius from that moment on and uh, and he'll change his name uh, 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 a couple of times uh, yes you know i i wanted Sirius to be a fable about fate uh, so there there are a couple of uh, of issues hidden in the book and and one is uh, it's a fable about uh, fate he's Sirius is constantly on the run unsure about uh, where to be cast up in life and and funny enough, eventually life leads him to exactly that the point where his dreams come true. So that is it coincidence? Is it a stroke of fate? This is is one of the issues I think in in the, in, in the novel be, be beyond the the, the storyline. 
It's very much in there, and, and it and it echoes, of course, what what the dog goes through and his name changes and him barely escaping, uh, is of course what happened to I guess you could say the lucky people. Um, so I'm going to read this next part, but oh dear, I'm going to torture the German again because I don't know how to. You don't. Pronounce you don't. Is it all right? Is it close it's enough? It's all right. Okay. Absolutely all right. Perfect. Okay. Perfect. Well, so everybody, everyone just forgive me because you're going to go out and buy this book. I tell you, you will just be so sorry if you don't. Serious, The Little Dog Who Almost Changed History by Jonathan Crown. Okay, so here we are. We're, who is Wuncha? Explain who Wuncha, Erwin Wuncha, the leader of the Department for Bird Protection, because I'm going to read a little thing about him needing to get a German dog. Yeah, I mean he's he's he was one of the uh, one of the monsters uh, of, yes. of uh, one of the Nazi monsters, and uh, and uh, a, a horrible a horrible historic figure and uh, little uh, little serious. By by that time, uh, he's he's called Hansi is uh, is uh, approaching him because that's the only way he can save his life and can can survive. Yes. Okay. So, and it's interesting because in the U.S., even to someone who's read quite a lot about this, uh, about the the whole that whole period in Germany, that name Wunsch was not familiar to me. So he must be one of the lesser monster evils, I guess, than the more famous, you know, Goering yeah, yeah. and Goebbels and stuff. Okay. So here we are. Wunsch was dead set on getting himself a German shepherd, German man, and German dog. They belong together too. But Heinrich docked in Office Three Twenty One next door advised him against it. His two-year-old daughter was attacked by his German shepherd, and now she has only one eye. Wunsch's children are older, admittedly. Rudy has just become a member of the Hitler Youth Jungvolk, and Ulrich is already a patrol leader. But still, they need to embark on their journey through life with two eyes. That's the very least the Jungvolk would be able to expect. And so it came about that a fox terrier joined their household, Hansi. The Hauptsumfer is no longer that bothered about the breed as long as it's a dog. With humans, of course, it's a different matter. Humans are not equal. Oh, no. In that context, race is very important. He even goes a step further. Any dog called Hansi has to be a German dog. Mistakes can be made, however. When it comes to Sirius, Erwin Wunsche has made the wrong choice. But how could he possibly know that? Hansi, he commands, walkies. A walk wouldn't be the right description for what the two of them are doing. The Hausstrumfer marches in goose step through the streets, with Sirius following on a taut lead. They both like lingering around trees. The dog certainly does, and the master even more so. It, make Wuncha, it makes Wuncha feel like a proud representative of the people of the forest. So there, there's what, there, that's another permutation that, that Levi, cum Sirius, cum Hansi, uh, winds up. It's it just, it, it's so extraordinary. As we're running out of time a bit, I'm just going to read a bit more because we get to the point where he's come. It's he's in Berlin and he's come back to Berlin, I believe. On page 158, he's come back to to Berlin. Um, he's found a hole in the garden fence. I picked that for some reason. Mm -hmm. I have to remind mm -hmm. myself he's come back to Berlin. But this dog's view on life is very philosophical and very it's all about survival, as you said. Sirius has discovered a hole in the garden fence between the elderberries and the hydrangeas, and he slips out through it whenever he's in the mood for some distraction. He wanders through Berlin in whatever direction the wind takes him, always taking care not to lose sight of the way back. Where is this war that everyone's always talking about? 
Sirius imagines war to be loud and wild, like the shootout in the saloon at Luckyville, only bigger. But instead, the city is eerily quiet. The streets are empty. Cars and buses are a rare sight. Gasoline has been rationed. People go to places on foot. They have gray, serious faces. They line up in front of the few shops which still exist in the hope of getting some food in exchange for ration coupons. Meat and bread are rationed, too. At least he's been lucky in that sense, since thinks serious. Hunger is not something he's suffering from. He's full to the bursting point with good German food, so much that he feels ashamed. By the side of the street, children trade bomb fragments with one another. They are from the last English air raid, which was a while ago now, when Sirius was still in Florida in the greatest show on earth. The English bombers are threatening to come back soon. To be on the safe side, Berlin is making every structure possible into an air raid shelter. Gas masks are being distributed to the population. Sirius has to brace himself now for the greatest war on earth. Why does fate drive him repeatedly to places where the greatest is taking place at that very moment? The small can be nice too. Why not the smallest show in the world, somewhere in Switzerland, or the smallest war in the world? Wishful thinking. He just has to accept it. Whatever he does, he'll always end up making it big. Lost in thought, Sirius roams around. As directionless as his wanderings are, he always ends up being drawn back to his old home, as though guided by some invisible hand. He stands there before his tree. There you are again, says the tree, clearly delighted. Yes, answers Sirius, exhausted. How are you, asks the tree. Well, sighs Sirius, just look at my life. Always being hunted, always on the run, says the tree, ever since I've known you. Sirius remains silent. I can't run, says the tree. You have roots, says Sirius, envying the tree for it. Both of them ponder for a while the advantages and disadvantages of roots, giving particular consideration to the fact that trees don't have a choice in the matter, whereas dogs, by their very nature, are more mobile. Just imagine a tree on the run. It's just... (laughs) Such an amazing book, Jonathan. I was just oh, waiting to talk you. to you before I sit down and read it right from the beginning all over again. It's everything. It's a fairy tale. It's a fable. It's a metaphor. It's, it just wraps up all the horrors and the joys and the absurdities of human existence. And this dog is our, is our, our oracle. He's, he's our Greek chorus. He's just fantastic. I suppose you aren't going to write anything more about him, are you? Yes, I'm. I'm. I'm already start. I've already started with the uh, with the uh, with the sequel. No. And uh, I I won't uh, tell you what it is about, but it's. Uh, oh. Uh, of my. course, I will continue his uh, his his oh, uh, his crazy crazy life. Oh, that is just <laughs> the best news I could possibly hear. Well, the Jonathan Crown that I now know and whose work I love, um, I hope remains uh, well well oiled at the computer and keeps on writing. It's just a wonderful <laughs> book, Jonathan, and I can't wait for the sequel and can't wait for people to have a chance to read Sirius and find out for themselves what a joy it is. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you very much Take for care. having me. Thank we'll you. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. We'll be right back after this quick word with Alex Doucet and Ali. This show is made possible in part by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, whose life has been devoted to wellness for kitty cats. He has his own cats-only clinic in Colorado and has devoted his life to inventing innovative litters for the health of all members of the family, with low-dust litters that allow everyone to breathe easier. Precious Cat's newest health monitor litter has broken new ground. It allows you to find the early signs of kidney disease in your cat and make changes before damage is done. 
Dr. Elsie's company also cares about people's health and has given millions of dollars to cancer research looking for a cure for multiple myeloma. This show is also brought to you by Ollie, a brand new dog food freshly made in a USDA kitchen from real human-grade ingredients without preservatives, artificial flavoring, or byproducts. Ollie meals are gently cooked in small batches, then flash frozen and delivered right to your door on a regular schedule. No more trips to the store. Ollie meals are vet formulated to create a nutritionally balanced meal and customized to meet your dog's individual needs. Finicky eater? No problem. Ollie will give you a full refund if your dog doesn't love his food. Meals arrive ready to defrost in portioned, ready to serve trays. You can design your dog's ideal meal at myollie.com. I am back with Alex Doucet and this delicious company and its delicious food called Ollie, O-L-L-I-E, which has just been unveiled, especially to the people of New York, but soon, and actually, I think already to the whole country. Alex, congratulations on this great inaugural uh, send-off of, of your ship, the ship of Ollie that has sailed into New York. Thank you. Thank you, and glad to be uh, part of the show. Well, you're very French, am I right? Yes, I was born and raised in France, but I've been living in New York for the past uh, 20 years. And at what point did you think dogs deserve food like French people eat? I've actually, Americans deserve food like French people eat, but you can't fix the humans. So when did you look around at the dogs and think, we can do better for these dogs? It's about a, a year and a half ago uh, when uh, my co-founder, Gabby Sloan, and I got together. We met uh, uh, last summer, and both she and I had a sort of very similar background. Uh, both we were, uh, you know, high-level athletes. Uh, I do triathlon and Ironman. She's an equestrian, so we were very focused oh. on nutrition. We, we both rescue dogs. Um, she rescued her dog while she was on a trip in Colombia. I rescued one of my two dogs um, three years ago at a rescue event in, uh, in the Hamptons. And, you know, I was feeding her what I perceived at the time to be a premium product, uh, a mix of a dry food and a canned food. And then very rapidly, my dog put on 18 pounds. Um, and Ouch. so I went, I went to seek the help of a nutritionist to understand what was going wrong. And this is really where it opened my eyes to the world of commercial pet food and the lack of good ingredients, uh, properly processed food, um, and just realizing that it was putting the life of hundreds of millions of dogs at risk here in this country. And so Gabby and I, about a year ago, set up on a mission to change the world of pet food by bringing a natural product, human-grade, refrigerated, that we could ship directly to consumers so that we didn't have to load the product with preservative and really make a product that looks like what you and I eat, which is basically helping close the gap between the dog food world and the human food world. What was interesting, two things struck me when I learned about Ollie. And then you you had you you had it at the there was a, a fun tea party in the Hamptons before the Dog Film Festival was there, and you came That's and right. were giving out samples, and I there was this little dog, and all these dogs are dogs who eat pretty much off their owners' plates at this particular party. The sort of people who, you know, either cook the salmon or the chicken, especially for their dogs. 
So a pretty pampered bunch, although I'm always telling these people your food isn't balanced. You cannot have a small dog living on just chicken. But I watched these dogs tasting your food and I thought, well, Ollie's great. And I embrace the whole idea behind it and uh, the, the accessibility, which has always been what was missing. I mean, there was a gal that I bumped into years ago. I was at Tompkins Square Park with the Dog Bible trying to promote this radio show, Dog Talk, at a, at a dog costume event. And uh, there was a nice gal there that was giving out samples of a freshly made in her own kitchen food, but, but she was trying to deliver it around New York in a car. And I, I knew that that couldn't possibly work. I mean, what if somebody wasn't home? You can't just leave it with the doorman. And what if they don't have a doorman and it's going to go bad? Yeah. And it just, but it made sense because people wanted to cook for themselves. That was 10 years ago and time went by. And I watched these dogs at this party. One of them seemed to, no exaggeration, seemed to be trying to eat the paper little bowl in which you'd put the sample. He looked like a dog who'd never eaten in his life. I was like, whoa, this dog is over the top enthusiastic. I was like, he's going to eat the pl- the paper the paper plate. And so, you know, I, I also think back to when I traveled in Europe with my dogs and particularly in France where people take dogs to restaurants. They're not welcome in hotels, which is confusing, but they're very welcome in a lot of restaurants. They serve food to the dogs in the restaurant and it's usually ground minced beef, rice and carrots. And yep. so I thought, well, being French, you have probably seen many dogs out and about being offered that in a restaurant or some version of it. And, you know, I don't know if that was in any way an inspiration for you to thinking, wouldn't that be great if there would be a way that dogs could just be served that with no trouble to the people? Yeah, I mean, not not really, to be be honest. I think the the biggest inspiration was the fact that, you know, most of the brand of dog food that exists in the U.S. are all made or owned by four big companies, uh, big conglomerates, Purina, Moss Pet Care, um, Colgate Family with Science Diet, Smuckers. And, you know, to be, you know, not to be like too harsh on them, but like they are the, the, the companies who are responsible for making the highly processed food for humans in the U.S. And so it's not surprised that to find out the product they're making for dog is overly, overly processed with non-organic product and lots of synthetic products, artificial flavoring, preservatives. So ultimately, when you eat the same thing two times a day, seven days a week, uh, it's going to have an impact in the mid to long term on your health and your immune system. And so for me, that was more an inspiration looking at, you know, cooking for your dog is, is, is a huge commitment. It's not easy. It's expensive, too. Um, you take the risk of not balancing the diet. People want a better alternative for themselves. Dogs are becoming the new children. Um, and, and people want to project their health concerns on, on, on their dog, and they're looking for and seeking for a better alternative. So that's where I saw the opportunity, and especially when I started looking at the success of companies like Blue Apron, seeing how many people are willing to order fresh produce through the mail and, and willing to cook for this. And so I said, explain, well, you know, explain Blue Apron to me. I don't know about it. How does it work, the human version? So, yeah, I mean, it's actually more complicated than Ollie because with Blue Apron, they ship you, you know, the produce, you know, the, the, the meat, the vegetables with a recipe, and you have to do all the work really? in the cooking. Really? Yeah. And it's and successful? It's, it's, it's successful? And it's, yeah, I mean, the company is about to go public next year. And My goodness. 
close to a billion in revenue. So what, what I really wanted to do is create a fresh alternative refrigerated product, but where the owner could have the convenience that they were used to when they, uh, they feed their dog dry food. So we, that was the principle that we use for us when we create Ollie is we have to be transparent. We want people to be, not necessarily believe what we say, but be able to check for themselves. So when they look at the product, it looks like real meat. You can recognize the carrot, the peas, because it is. the blueberries. <laughs> because it is, yeah. And so don't just trust the label, trust the product. Try it for yourself. I've ate some of the food. You know, it's a human-grade product. We make it uh, in Pennsylvania in a USDA facility that's also overseen by the FDA. So 100% of the ingredient that we use has to be human-grade as a result. And right. it's, already, it's already cooked, it's already uh, prepared, it's already balanced because we work with a, a vet nutritionist who is a formulator and he knows how to balance and formulate a diet. See, now that's so a, let a, me just interrupt, Alex. That's a really, really, yeah. really important part of this because there are people who want to home cook. In fact, a recent copy article, the, the, the recent issue of the Bark magazine was completely devoted to home cooking, completely devoted. The editor wrote about how you should home cook and someone who has a dog cookbook wrote about, oh, it's so good and it's better. But, you know, when you read it, first of all, you have to buy a certain slow cooker and you have to put this and that and the other thing in in a certain, you know, sequence of what goes first, what goes second. And how many people have a crock pot that's on for 14 hours? I don't know. I don't think it fits the modern life. But the problem is it's still not balanced. And dogs have a need for fat amongst other things that people don't even, I mean, people need more fat than they're getting quality fat. They're eating too many carbs and not enough fat. And so are dogs. Too many carbs, not enough quality oils and fats. So a vet nutritionist knows how to make sure that, that a lot of these are small dogs, small and, you know, very childlike yeah, dogs. And, and they're going to, they get heart problems. And if you don't have well-balanced food, you wind up with cardiac problems. I mean, and that's yeah. why having it vet, vet approved and vet figured out is, is really smart. What you, you came to the dog film festival, you actually were a sponsor of it and you had this fabulous, umbrella bicycle cart that looked like you were in the south of France. It really did. Right next to the adoption van for the Mayor's Alliance so that everyone that came to see the dogs that were for adoption got to see what Ollie was. Everyone walking by that came with a, had a dog, you were like, here, have a taste. And people were just so excited. It was like having the Good Humor ice cream truck there, but something healthy for dogs. Exactly. It was, a, it's like what- it was great. It's like when the ice cream cup comes by for you for your children, they get super excited. Exactly. I think I think I think one of the biggest feedback we get from pet owner and what they get them the most excited about Ollie is, regardless if your dog is you know just on a regular basis devoid of food or your dog is a very picky eater, which yes. we know there's a lot of them out there. The one common thread with Ollie is like every single dog will just devour the food, and that's the one thing that really surprised. Uh, most people, and remember when, when you and I were at the, uh, the event uh, last summer, uh, the the owner of the house where we were, she was surprised because she she was cooking for a dog and the dog was very picky. And then the drive, the dog tried Ollie and she was shocked. She's like, I have never seen my dog eat <laughs> this well, much was, and wanted the food so badly. It was, it was. She's actually a good example of the kind of person that I'm talking about. So there are bowls in the refrigerator of freshly cooked chicken, shredded and pulled, and salmon obviously all human grade and they put this food down for these dogs and they're just not interested. So I think 
Wow, well, they do give some not good snacks, I'll tell you that. Highly processed, full of chemicals. That's the irony, you know. They, they yeah. give that on the one hand and that on the other. And I thought, well, these dogs are just stuffed full of bad treats. But then when they are confronted by a food that Ollie makes and they have an appetite, it really makes you wonder. I wonder if by some nature instinct, they're craving the kind of the combination of everything that's in there. They don't just want yeah. salmon, although, you know, my big Weimar honors would go, give me the whole fish. I'll eat it from the head down. But smaller dogs that have been spoiled and spoiled and spoiled. I have another friend whose dog, whose name ironically is Ollie. <laughs> I'm definitely going to turn on to this. That dog, oh my God, there's just almost nothing he'll eat. Almost nothing. So it'll be fascinating to see what he will do when he's faced with a food that is the exact same name as he has. His whole name is Oliver, but still. It's really interesting, isn't it, that a dog that's been pampered with little precious tidbits can get either bored by them or they're just not interesting. Ollie must have just a fragrance of everything that's cooked together, kind of like a well, we also. We also spend a lot of time refining the product. We, 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 to be honest, we spend about a year doing um, our research and development to really try to perfect the product. And, and we did a lot of testing with, you know, um, friends who try Ollie for like a few months, as oh. well as we, uh, we, we went to uh, kennels, we did studies on us, and we did what's called uh, palatability testing, where we, we benchmark Ollie against different products to get a sense of like, do, do we achieve the goal that we set for ourselves? And what was great is, you know, when we knew that we were ready, we basically try Ollie against anything, dry food, uh, fresh food, canned food, uh, dehydrated food, freeze-dry, and every single time we came back as the winner. And so when, when the study came back and tells us, you know, yes, it's significant, the difference you guys won by three to one or something like this, then we knew we were ready to, offer this product to the public and be ready to ship across the United States. And that's what you do now. It arrives frozen and then the person yes. just puts it in their fridge. So when it's time to serve it, they can gently microwave it to, to even make it warmer if their dog is super picky or, or what do you recommend? No, they, I mean, mo most people, what you do is once you receive your box of Ali, you, you put it in the fridge, uh, it'll take 24 hours to you know defrost entirely if you want to accelerate the process you can obviously for the first trade uh, put in the microwave but you don't have to reheat the food uh, you don't have to recook it you don't have to add water or rehydrate it's really ready to serve and I think one of the biggest things that I'm the most proud of with Ollie is we solved a big problem that existed and it was one of the causes why my dog uh, put on so much weight is most of the feeding guidelines with the commercial pet foods are very vague and accurate. Correct. Um, we, we profile, when you sign up for Ollie on myolly.com, uh, you will go through a little survey when you tell us about your dog, the breed, the age, activity level, current weight. And based on that information, we calculate the daily calorie requirement of your dog and we'll match that to the perfect portions. And so we will send you a box every two weeks with the exact portion that your dog needs for those two weeks with a customized spoon that tells you how much to feed. So there's no more guessing and having to read the back of the bag and trying to do the calculation yourself. You know that your dog is getting the exact calories they need. And, and uh, what's beautiful about that is that if you maintain your dog at an ideal weight based on their calorie need, then you have the chance to extend the life of your dog. And that's really uh, what uh, this, this is all about. 
Alex, it's really congratulations on this great launch. I'm, I can't wait to see what they think of this in California where they're so nuts about food. You're going to be such a big hit in California. So Thank you. I, I'm just excited for you. I'm excited that Ollie's taking the trip around the country with the Dog Film Festival because it'll be great to have people learn more about it. Keep up the good work. Oh, my God. And just take a break before the next triathlon. It's making me exhausted just thinking about it. Congratulations, <laughs> Alex. I look forward to seeing you at other dog film festivals coming up. Take Absolute care. pleasure to be part of the show. Thank you so Lovely. much for having Thank me. Thank you. Of course. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Halo, holistic, natural dog and cat foods, which are made from real ingredients you can recognize. Halo uses real meat in their kibble. No rendered byproducts, chicken meal, or chemicals. And their new grain-free recipes like Vigor give you even more healthy choices for your pet's dinner, while Daily Greens bring vitamins and digestive enzymes into your dog's diet. Halo is a private company, partly owned by Ellen DeGeneres, where they emphasize giving back by making donations to shelters through freekibble.com for pets awaiting a forever home. This show is also brought to you with the generous support of Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. However, not all fish oil is created equal. The Nordic Naturals difference is that their oil comes from Norway, where they use responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness. It is great to have a doctor who specializes in cats join me. It's been a while since I've had a marvelous feline specialist here. Bruce Kornreich is a doctor. He's actually the associate director at the Cornell Feline Health Center, which is a center that we, we've talked to doctors from there over the years, especially on Cat Chat. It conducts and sponsors research that prevents and treats disease in cats. But today we're going to talk about diseases, I guess you could say, in people. Dr. Bruce, thank you so much for taking time out from the Feline Center to help us understand cat scratch disease. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, do you have to be super? uh, It's lovely to have you here. And, you know, the the kitties, of course, are the underserved creatures in everyone's home. And I have to say guilty, guilty that so many dog things overtake one in the world. And, you know, you read an article in the New York Times and you're like, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, cats... They're in everybody's house, and this well, issue... Well, in fact, there are more cats yes, exactly. in everybody's houses in the United States now than there are dogs. Yeah, and we don't, we don't always do right by them. We don't give them the fullest life. We don't, you know, we, we love them equally, but in their Absolutely. own way, and they are not as demanding, so they're willing to put up with a much lower quality of life than a dog is. And we're doing and, our, well, and, and right? certainly different uh, different characters for sure. Yes, and also we. But we like to take very good care of them. As, well, as, uh, I yeah. think I think people would like to take or should like to take or should learn that there's better ways to take care of them than what we're now doing. And I I hope you'll come back on subsequent occasions and discuss the whole issue of feline enrichment and what cats Absolutely. really need and deserve versus what we give them, which I do believe is the short end of the stick. They're they're kind of like the. Well, redheaded stepchild is the stupidest comment. Me being a redhead, I've never been treated like a stepchild. <laughs> but that's a whole other story. Cats, Although, having said that, um, yes. I do know people who spoil their cats very much. 
I hope in the right way, not just feeding them a bunch of food that makes them fat. Oh, no, no, no. To no, be discussed. Because right. obesity is another issue that we that's could probably right. talk about. Oh, my God. Right. We could at great <laughs> length. Mm-hmm. We won't even go there at the moment. But cat scratch <laughs> fever, yeah, you, you might have heard me ever mention the phrase kitty crack. I'm rather rabid, excuse the expression, on the topic of feeding <laughs> the obligate carnivore the meat yeah. he or she needs. Uh, so cat scratch fever is something – People don't fully understand how they get it. I know that there, there's a wonderful lady, Ellen Suki, who created Neko Flies, which are these brilliant cat toys. They're just fantastic. I should actually get some sent up to you guys. I had some sent down to the uh, to University of Pennsylvania. I'm sure you know Carlos Siracusa, and they do some oh, work yeah. down there. No, I'd, I'd love to. Please send Oh, them. the Neko Flies are out of this world. But she has marvelous, gorgeous cats that she does a lot of um, – personal research on what kind of movement in her toys most excites and interests cats of different personalities. And she got scratched one day by a newer kitten that she'd got, and she was hospitalized. And I remember hearing this years ago from her and thinking, hospitalized. So tell us about the whole issue of what, what, what are the dangers of being scratched by a cat? Sure. That's a good question. It's actually not, um, not surprising that this was a kitten in this story that you're talking about. So, Cat scratch oh, disease is a bacterial infection. Um, it's actually uh, the bacterium involved is called Bartonella henselae. Okay. Um, and this is actually carried in many cats depending upon which study you, uh, you cite. Right. Uh, between 25 and 40% of cats may carry this bacterium at some point in their lives. An important point to note is that uh, most cats that have this disease don't show any signs of illness. Rarely they may have signs of illness um, and show some, uh, some you know, signs on physical examination and behaviorally, but the vast majority of them um, show no signs of illness. So owners don't even have um, the, 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 the possibility of a bacterial infection in mind. So right, the thing is right. The, the bacterium is transmitted by fleas. Oh, really? It, oh, my. Yes. I didn't even know that. Sure, from the cat from the cat flea, and the thing is that um, the cat the cat fleas can carry, um, or, or the bacterium is transmitted either in the flea droppings or the dirt right. feces, um, or by bites. And again, basically, uh, the cats can become infected from these fleas either by being bitten or by scratching and biting at the fleas. Right. They can also kind of pick the fleas up in infected. Um, uh, you know, in their nails and in their teeth, and then they can all, they can then infect people uh, when they bite or scratch them. Uh, in, in you know, in most cases, uh, particularly you know, minor cat scratches and bites um, are uneventful. In some cases, you may have some localized swelling, um, but um, in 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 uh, cases of cat scratch disease, you can actually develop. Uh, more significant problems in the area. The area may become swollen, a kind of red uh, with a round raised lesion. Sometimes you'll have like a exudation or what people would call pus coming from this lesion. Then ultimately, uh, you may have lymph node enlargements. You know, lymph nodes that right. actually drain the area that's uh, uh, wounded. Um, and people can actually go on to develop fever, headaches, exhaustion, uh, poor appetite, that sort of thing. So. You know, this is, um, it, it's not a common disease, but it's something that people should be aware of. And it's something that also, uh, if people start to see this um, uh, constellation of signs after being bitten or scratched by a cat, 
they should certainly contact their their physician uh, for a consultation. Well, what's interesting is that most of the time when we're talking about pets and their illnesses, we're really focusing on the cat's illnesses, FELV, you know, UTIs, upper respiratory sure. problems. So we say cat scratch disease, we think, oh, the cats get a disease called cat scratch disease. But that isn't right. the case, right? It's right. a transmittable disease. That's but, right. It, it's but, what we call it a zoonotic disease. So a zoonotic disease is one that can be passed from animals to people. But the difference uh, and, is, and, uh, if I'm if I'm not wrong, that the cat is not showing signs, symptoms, or or any harm from carrying. He, they're it, just a carrier. That's right. In rare cases, they can uh, show signs of illness, so inflammation of different parts of their body, like their eyes, their oral cavity, uh, rare cases, their heart. But yeah, it's definitely true that most cats don't show signs, so owners aren't even on the lookout for any kind of a problem. And what about people that do trap, neuter, return, and are involved with feral cats? I think that uh, although well, the people, certainly a concern, right? I mean, because, they're not know. well protected. If I, I, that's why I say to people, if you want to maintain a feral colony and you want to help with TNR, someone who is already skilled in doing it and has the right equipment, including big leather gloves for a, a truly Absolutely. feral cat, should be the one to r- try to remove that cat from the from the trap and so forth and so on, right? Well, sure. Well, it's definitely true because, I mean, the things that are, you know, the factors that will put a cat at risk and an associated person who's in contact with that cat at risk for Bartonella infection or cat scratch disease in the person uh, would be primarily exposure to fleas and with other cats who have exposure to fleas that may carry uh, this this um, uh, bacterium. So, you know, cats are sort of a natural vector for the yeah. bacterium, and when there's not good flea control going on, which is usually the case with feral cats, then uh, that's certainly a concern uh, for the people who are working with them. So that's an important reason to use Vectra or any of the good topical spot-ons on your owned cat on a very regular basis, because often people will say, well, I've never seen a flea on my cat. I haven't even seen the flea poo, which is the, that little you know black dirt on that's them. Right. But that's, that's right. because these good topicals kill all three life cycles of a flea. So it doesn't well, take... Well, flea control is just, so, you know, the best thing that people can do is, number one, keep their cats indoors. Yes, definitely. Um, and, then, and it is true that um, uh, cats, probably more so than dogs, cats can be carrying fleas without showing outward signs of that. Yep. So often they are itchy. Certainly cats very commonly get flea bite dermatitis or allergic reactions to flea bites. But they can also be carriers that are not as apparent in terms of the carrier status for fleas as they might be, for example, with dogs. So, uh, yeah, the flea is really an important consideration in management uh, and prevention of this disease. So have you deal with many cats all the time, both owned and unowned cats, community cats, I'm sure, at the Cornell Feline Health Center? Uh, Were you trained early on in your own training? And when you're doing teaching, do you emphasize this to students and, sure, we and, do. And, and again, but then do people I'm, I'm get sorry. lazy or sloppy and go, oh, come on, cats are fine? And then have you yourself or other doctors or students gotten sick from it and everybody gets the wake-up call? Is it a little bit something that everyone's not that stringent about until the alarm bell sounds? Well, I mean, I, I do have colleagues who have actually been hospitalized from this. I, I want to find wow. something wooden to knock on right here. I personally have never... I've, I've been bitten and scratched by cats, but thankfully I haven't had an advanced case that required antibiotics or anything. 
but you know, in terms of you know, I think we always have to be on the lookout for becoming too complacent. Yes. Regarding any of a number of things in life, and certainly in dealing with animals, you know, we do our best to make animals comfortable, um, happy, and, and healthy when we're working with them. But uh, cats and, and dogs and any animal can become unpredictable. Yep. So I, I have the good fortune to work with great students here at uh, Cornell University in the clinic. I'm actually a cardiologist by training. Oh, really? So, yeah. So I see a lot of cats. A lot of cats have heart disease, for example. We do work with a lot of cats, and, and I am very um, kind of strict uh, with my students about being careful about cat bites and cat scratches. Certainly dog bites or, or, or you know, any potential danger from any animal, I feel that that's incumbent upon me as an instructor. But, you know, we're, we're pretty aware, and, and uh, cats that are, you know, if cats get um, upset or scared in the yes. clinic, uh, they can become difficult to deal with. I always say I would much rather deal with a dog um, that is afraid or, or not being compliant than I would a cat that is afraid or not being compliant because... You know, in my experience, quite frankly, a cat's much harder to deal with. And, and cats uh, and cats uh, lash out. It's how they protect themselves. Their first instinct is to scratch, hiss, and bite, and it happens oh, yeah. so fast. I and mean, they have five weapons compared yes, to a dog's one. That's yes. the way I look at it. And, so, and, and that's their first line of defense. Their first line of defense isn't to appease and shrink and try and get away. Right. It's to go at you and for you. That's how they've survived so long. I guess that... You know, it's it's a curious thing. People own cats, and I used to get all these calls on the air. I don't know what to do. When I'm patting my cat, all seems well, and then it turns on me, and it bites me, or it scratches me. And there are so many cats at home in a very comfy setting, much less in the high-intensity, fear-inducing you know, experience of a clinic and all the things that are fear-inducing in a cat to it, where they reach a saturation point. And as you obviously know, there are cats who, after three or four strokes, they're done. And people oh, sure. are not looking at the body language and seeing that cat stiffen and the tip of the tail swish. And that cat, in a heartbeat, like an, I think of an alligator, like, whomp, they'll bite you or whomp, they'll scratch oh, sure. you. And so the no, people say thing, it was unprovoked, a... but it was provoked by the person usually. Well, you, and it's interesting because and it's, so, this is something that we could certainly talk about on subsequent um, uh, get-togethers, if right. you like. But, you know, that whole thing about... You know, you would, aggression, meaning some sort of yes. um, uh, you know, an aggressive move by a cat, that can really be elicited by a lot of things. Usually in the clinic we deal with primarily what we would call fear aggression, which yep. is defensive behavior toward an yep. unfamiliar stimulus. Perhaps in some cases it's pain. We're starting to realize now that cats oh. get osteoarthritis and things probably more than we realize. And sometimes cats are become aggressive out of pain. But they can also do things, you know, predatory aggression, uh, where they stalk things, yes. they may stalk the owner. Yep. Sometimes uh, play aggression um, in young cats and kittens. So remember that cats and kitten, kittens learn how to play appropriately with their litter That's mates. That's right. Uh, by if they if they bite too much, they'll either be retaliated against, or the other kitten will make and will vocalize and then um, stop playing. Right. Um, so uh, there could be uh, redirected aggression is when yep. a cat is aroused by one thing and then it directs its aggression toward another so maybe a cat sees a bird outside the window the owner comes over the cat is very worked up from seeing the bird and they uh strike out at the yep. owner you know unexpectedly so yeah there are a lot of reasons that a cat uh, may do this um but cats but, you know, do lash thing, out 
what they do they, is they, they lash out. You know, and they so can. And, and you know, it's really important that people take precautions. Um, you know, knowing that many ostensibly healthy cats uh, may be carrying this bacterium, it's not a reason to panic. I don't think. Uh, but it's uh, but it's a reason to be well informed and to take actions to number one prevent bites and scratches and number two uh, be vigilant and careful uh, if if they are to occur. Well, one of the things that that Cornell has let people know is that the Centers for Disease Control found that recently a yearly amount of 12,500 people, and these are people that it was reported. I'm sure the number is way higher. Get yeah. cat scratch disease. And 500 of them are hospitalized. Maybe the 500 number is correct. I'm sure the 12,500 is very low because people, you know, they might get a mild form of the disease or their doctor doesn't report it. I don't think that sure. there's any law and about that, reporting it. That particular study, of course, you know, we're very aware of that because, you know, we, we keep track of not only right. uh, feline well-being but also things that may affect attitudes of folks towards cats. Yes, and uh, particularly that particular study. Right, sorry, guys. Sorry, what were go you ahead. Say? No, that particular study. No, that particular study, study was, you know, was interesting. They actually looked back at uh, um, health insurance records, and they actually what they did was they reviewed. Um, I don't have the name of the, of the registry right now, right. but they looked. They looked. They looked retrospectively between 2005 and 2013 at health insurance records for physicians' uh, key diagnoses that oh, said interesting. cat scratch disease. Now, interestingly, that study, I believe, did not include people less than 65 years of age. You had to be um, over 65 for it to count. No, oh, you had to be under 65. Oh, under. Right, right, right. That's funny. Uh, and, and it was actually, you know, and the way I, it's a very important study because, you know, it, it helps us know a little bit more about the epidemiology of this yep. disease. Uh, it talks about groups that may be more at risk. It talks about uh, when and where you may have spikes. So one one um, interesting finding in this paper was that it appears that the incidence of cat scratch disease spikes in January. How uh, and then all There are all sorts of hypotheses regarding why this may be the case. So, for example, is it that people get kittens for around the holidays, for example, um, and they're playing with kittens more because they just got a kitten right. for either Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever? Yep. Um, what I'd love yeah. to jump to just in, in concluding, because we're running out of time, is sure. th this information said to wash the wound with soap and running water. Surely there's something more that one can do, or is that really it? Well, that's the most. That's really a, a very important thing. And, that's and it. That's it right the best away. you can do to disinfect. Um, in, well, generally speaking, you know, the recommendation right now is really just to wash the cat bites and scratches right away. Yep. Wash your hands with soap after playing with your cat, especially if you're living with young people right. or with weakened immune systems, and be very careful about having cats less than one year of age um, play in a manner that may promote scratches and bites with people uh, that are immunosuppressed. So. Older people, right, and younger. Young well, this is really this people. is really great news for all the adult cats in the shelters. You guys, forget and of about course, the kittens. Control fleas, flea control, yep, very absolutely, important. Absolutely. So, those of you that are are going to add a cat to your life for the first time or add to other cats, think adult cats. They are they're they're the cleaner choice, and there's so they're many wonderful. adult cats languishing in shelters instead of the kittens. Dr. Bruce Cormack, this is really terrific advice, and we will all take it to heart. Thank you so much Please for being do. with us. Thank you for having. Thank you so much for listening. Kiss your kitties, hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week.